0: I, of course, am super excited about this. I'm excited not just because it's Bible study and that's my favorite thing, but I'm excited because it's summer and I love summer. I love everything about summer until (laughs) mid-July. Then I'm over it. Then I'm like, I love fall, everything fall. Let's talk about apple pies and the kids going back to school and cooler weather, but for now, I love summer. And I, I am still a bit of a type A personality where when the season new seasons start, I want to make like a bucket list. I want to make some goals. I want to make a plan for the upcoming season. And here's the things that I have on my bucket list right now. I'm sure that you would agree with me on some of these. Hand-squeezed lemonade is a must in the summer. Even better if somebody else wants to hand squeeze it for me. Uh, evenings on the porch. Sand volleyball, not very good at it, but our connection group loves to play sand volleyball. Uh, I want to try a drive-in movie with my family. Um, a couple other things, maybe they're also on your list. A summer house project, a summer reading program with my kids, which we'll, again, just do until halfway through the July, and then we'll give up. <laughs> Visit some friends, and uh, we're going to go to Yellowstone. And last but not least, for every summer, I listen to country music for about two months. And then I move on. I just feel like it fits. All country music (laughs) is about summer, and so I love to. And then I'm like, okay, let's move on. Guys, you should try it. Try just listening to it for the summer. It's great. Um, So those are the traits of a true summer. Well, you guys are about to begin a study in one of the most practical and applicable books in the Bible. And in some ways, I would say that the book of James builds a bucket list for the christian right it builds for us a list of all these things that we want to be so we want to be steadfast don't we we want to be persevering humble trusting we want to have controlled speech and we would love to have pure religion these are the traits of a true christian if you have done studies with us then you know that the first week of a study, we don't get very far. So for today, we are going to begin in James chapter one, and we are going to get as far as verse one. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So let's start there. James is the type of the book in the Bible called an epistle Kind of a fancy word for letter okay james is writing a letter so just like when we studied first john a little bit more than a year ago what we did this first week is we imagined that this letter came in an envelope like old school snail mail okay so if you can still remember what that looks like you look at an envelope and the first thing you're going to do is you're going to say who is this from where did this letter come from so let's look as far as the envelope tonight on this envelope, we would see that the letter came from a man named James. James. Good. It's going to be a good summer. Okay. It comes from a man named James. So we are going to push each other to be good students of the Word. So we need to ask good questions. The first question we're going to ask is, who is James? Okay. And it seems so obvious now, but how many times do we just start reading a book of the Bible and we have no idea where it came from or who it was sent to? What do we know about James? Well, James was a really popular name in this first generation. It was like the Sarah of the 90s and the Abby of today, right? There was this guy, James, who was an apostle. Uh, He was the brother of John, and he was one of Jesus' closest apostles. But that's not our James, okay? Cross him off the list. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. I don't know who Alpheus is, but this James was one of the 12 disciples. You guys have probably heard of him. He's not the guy who wrote this letter. We'll move on. There was also James, the father of Judas, but not Judas who denied Jesus, but another Judas. Anyway, it wasn't that James either, but the James who wrote this letter, we find out largely from church history, was James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was the son of Mary and Joseph, and in that way was the half-brother. So next question, what do we know about him? What do we know about this James? Well, what we can conclude is that when he wrote this letter, he was the pastor in the church in Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem, that's a big deal. James was the pastor of like the mothership of all churches. Uh, he was the successor to Peter. So you can imagine, those were big shoes to fill. And we actually hear him mention, James is mentioned by Paul in Galatians, the first chapter, he says that he saw James when he went to Jerusalem, right after his conversion. What else do we know? He was an apostle, but not one of the 12 disciples that traveled around with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And we do find out that he got a few nicknames during his life. He got called James the Righteous and James the Just. But those nicknames did not really befit him earlier in his life. See, James the the Just and the Righteous, the Pastor, James the Apostle, that was all James 2.0, okay? Okay. This was not the James of previous years. Listen as I read this from John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do no one who wants to become a public figure does his acts in secret since you're doing these things show yourself to the world for even his own brothers did not believe in him therefore jesus told them the brothers my time is not yet here for you any time will do the world cannot hate you the world cannot hate you but it hates me because i testify that its works are evil you go to the festival. I am not going to the festival because my time has not fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. James is again mentioned in Mark chapter 6, when it says, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us as well? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is without honor only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. Do you guys see this context that we get of James? This was more than just two brothers with a competitive spirit between each other. I mean, this was not just James having an issue with his perfect older brother. I mean, like, truly perfect firstborn. (laughs) There's more to that. And it wasn't even just that James was apathetic. There's way more. See, James actually tried to plot and trap Jesus, that Jesus would, that his ministry would be stopped and maybe that he would even be killed. That was James 1.0. James was a skeptic, ladies. He was a skeptic, he was a cynic, and he was a doubter. Yet he begins this letter in this way, introducing himself like this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word servant in the Greek (coughs) is actually translated better as bond slave. Slave. He's saying that he was enslaved to Jesus. Ladies, something has so radically changed in James. He has gone from being indignant to Jesus to considering himself enslaved to him. He has gone from skeptic to slave. He has gone from being an antagonist to the works of Jesus to now being a pillar preacher for the gospel of Jesus. The man that once stumbled over Jesus's claims is now bowing low like a servant. Something has so radically changed in James that he doesn't even introduce himself as James, the brother of our Lord. No, he says James, a bondslave of Jesus. He doesn't name drop. He doesn't use that credential at all. I don't know about you guys, but I name drop a lot. I'm, I am not proud of it, but I do it. I, I even do it specifically with this context. I'll even name drop my brother, and he's nowhere close to Jesus. I'll say, I'm Rebecca, the sister of Ryan Hamby. <laughs> well, why do I do that? I do it to make myself feel better, to, to convince myself that I'm as good as I hope to be. I do it to feed my pride. It's not what James does. Because he's so different now. See, somewhere along the way, he changed. And we don't really know the details. Scripture doesn't really fill in James' conversion story. But we do read in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrected Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Isn't that cool? We have to know this context, ladies. Laying out this foundation and building this context is imperative If we are going to understand his message, we have to now look for his pastoral heart. We'll learn from it for the next six weeks, and this context will greatly change our ability to understand what he's saying. Okay, back to the envelope. So we see that it's from James. Well, what else would we see on there? Who is it written to? Who are the recipients of this letter? It says the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So 12 tribes might sound a little bit familiar to those of us who grew up in Sunday school. The 12 tribes comes from the Old Testament. Recall the 12 sons of Jacob, who then became the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so we can conclude then that James is talking to primarily Jews. But then as you go through the study, you're going to see a word on repeat is brethren, brothers. He calls them brothers over and over again. So that gives us another bit of information. He is talking to Jewish Christians. People of the Jewish faith who have accepted Jesus' teaching. The letter is written to them. But it says the dispersion. What that means is that it's written to the church at large. Okay, It's not just one congregation. So compare that to maybe what you've seen like some of the books that Paul wrote. He wrote specifically to the church in Ephesus and called it (coughs) Ephesians. The church at Philippi would be the book of Philippians. One single congregation addressing their specific problems and needs. But James isn't doing that. He's writing to the church at large. Why are they dispersed? Why are they spread out? Why are they not just all uh, close to Jerusalem? Well, that's because of persecution. Maybe you recall that from previous studies, but this first generation of believers faced a lot of persecution after Jesus' death and resurrection. So these new Christians, these young Christians, they were poor. They were being persecuted. They were economically marginalized. And on top of that, there was great famine during these years in the Middle East. That is who this is written to. Let's continue to build the context of this letter. When was it sent? 40 A.D. is our best guess. 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So what's really neat, a cool fact about this book, is that it was the very first New Testament letter written. It was the very first New Testament book written, actually. That can be confusing because when we open up our Bible or we look on our Bible app, it's so much further down than the other books. But chronologically, it was the first book written. It was written to the very first generation of Christian followers, of Christ followers. So then we should ask the question, Now that we know that conduct and we're picturing this, we say, okay, so then what is important for them to know? What is James going to tell them and why do they need to hear it? Well, I can imagine that their passion was real. I mean, so many of them had actually seen Jesus, maybe seen the miracles of the disciples as, as the church started. Maybe their passion was real, but their roots didn't go down very deep. Maybe they were doing okay when they were in the holy huddle in Jerusalem, but now they've been dispersed, and they're seemingly alone. Maybe they don't have one of the apostles or the disciples actually leading their church. So the question is, would they withstand the famine, both of food and faith? Would their faith survive persecution? Would their faith survive poverty? James is going to say to them in so many different ways that a genuine and maturing faith is imperative for a time like this. Things were about to get real for these Christians. And so we get to listen to his pastoral heart as he addresses these concerns. That's what's on the front of our envelope. And then you get to open it and say, okay, what is this about? what does the content of this letter what is the purpose of this letter well the big idea for our next six weeks is that james is going to instruct this early church how to mature spiritually thus the title of the study he's going to instruct the christians how to mature spiritually how do you go from being a small bud of faith to becoming a mature fruit-bearing christian a a Christian whose roots drive down deep and whose growth is happening in a way that exemplifies a genuine faith. That is what the content of this letter is all about. So we have now looked at the original context of this letter. We are putting forth good study habits to understand the Bible in its context. Now we get to say, well, what does it mean for me? How is this book going to change my summer, my faith, my understanding of God? So we now get to see that as James invites them, he will also invite each one of us to get really up close and look at our life. Ladies, that's what each one of you is going to have the opportunity to do with this study. Get up close and look at your life. Assess your life. Have you and I taken the teachings of Jesus and the message of the gospel and let it driven our behavior, our attitudes, both seen and unseen? Have we let it drive how we do relationships, how we handle money? So let's illustrate this. This is not an original illustration. Assume with me that the life of faith is like running a race. Okay, we've heard this before, that the life of faith is, is much like running a race. Now, I know that there are different views on running, right, there are two camps. There are some of you in this room who are currently a runner, or you have recently been a runner, and I even start talking about this, and you are listening now. You're like, yes, Rebecca, run with it, right? Like, I love this analogy, and that pun, right? And you're going to track with me because you are. I'm speaking your language. Then there's the other half of you, and you point and laugh at runners, right? You think, what are they doing? Running is so dumb, right? Silly girls, why, why run? But either way, we all have some exposure and some opinions to running. So we're going to go with this. The life of faith is much like running a race, but what I am picturing is not laps around a track. Not an even flat race that you're running. I feel like that's a weak metaphor. I feel like that falls short of what the life of faith is actually like. What about a Tough mutter? Has anyone done one of those obstacle races? I think we're gonna do one as a women's ministry because I got really excited about this. The Tough Mudder, also called, someone just rolled their eyes, it was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I won't point you out, but that was perfect. Okay, the Tough Mudder, also called the Warrior Dash and the Spartan Race. They are these 5Ks up to like full marathons with obstacles in them, okay? So when I started working on this, I then stopped and Googled these races and then didn't come back to working on the talk at all because I was like, this thing is psycho. This is crazy. Here's some of the things that you do in these races. Uh, There's obviously tough mudder. Almost everything has to do with mud. But there's a rope climb. It's got like a military feel to it. The ladder, uh, there's even something with little bits of electroshock, like you get electrocuted, just a little. Um, Yeah. There's a mud mile. (laughs) There is something called a devil's beard, where this net is only a foot above the ground and it's all mud underneath it and you have to army crawl your way through. This thing is crazy. So imagine with me that you're running this race or watching and laughing at someone who is running this race. What do you think those runners, those competitors are doing? Every few steps, they are looking at their feet, right? They have to watch their steps very closely. Otherwise, they will roll their ankle, they will step in a hole or something worse. It's crucial that they watch their steps so that they can overcome the obstacles and the trials. Well, James would say that in the race of faith, he wants us to watch our steps closely. How we speak, how we handle money, and how we treat each other. He also lays out that there will be tests, there will be obstacles, temptations in the life of a Christian in all of our lives. But he wants us to understand, and guys, this is so important, these trials that we're going to talk about, they are are not there to punish you or to condemn you, but rather they are there to strengthen and to solidify our faith. These obstacles are there to help drive the roots of our faith deeper than they otherwise would be. James is going to tell us that we have to be really serious if we are going to pass these tests. And he's going to have to tell us that we have to endure, we have to persevere, if we're going to reach the goal of spiritual maturity. He would say, while physical endurance is built in miles, spiritual endurance is built in trials while physical endurance is built in miles spiritual endurance is built in trials go back to that metaphor with me of running this this race at some point in, in most every race you want to quit at some point right what do you do when you want to quit you know when the finish when the start line has disappeared behind you and you can't yet see the finish line you've got miles ahead of you you've got obstacles ahead of you and you want to quit. You want to throw in the towel. What do you do? You have to look up. As as important as it is for us to watch our steps, we also need to lift our heads because that's when we get motivation and perspective. That's why an aerial view of something is so effective in a long-term project. Well, James is going to say the same thing. James is going to pull the, the eyes of his readers up to get an eternal perspective, to get a much bigger picture. Maybe that's what some of us need this summer, is to remember the bigger picture, to remember eternity. So he knows that these trials are going to tempt these young Christians to throw the rag in, so he invites them to lift their eyes. How does he do that? A couple different ways that you're going to notice as you read is that he pulls in a ton of Old Testament language. This was super helpful because his audience was Jewish. But the ways he does that primarily is actually he pulls in a ton from wisdom literature. So this is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. So for those of you who love practical books, this is super, super practical. James is a boots-on-the-ground kind of writer. Secondly, what he will do, and what I'm so excited for you guys to see in your own study, is that he will use Jesus' words in every chapter. He is inviting us to get the bigger picture by using some of Jesus' words and ideas. When he does that, he is giving his readers the why to complete the how. We said this book is about how to mature spiritually, but it's not just about that. He will give us the why as well. These are the things that he writes about in the body of his letter. Well, James's words, because they were breathed by the Holy Spirit and thus made their ways into our Bible, they have the power to greatly change our summers. Maybe that's why some of you are here, is because you know that you need some things to change in your life. Maybe change has already started and you just want more of that. Well, this is a great book for us. It can change our summers. It can change our attitudes, our words, our friendships, how we make decisions. He's going to give us dozens and dozens of commands and instructions. As he does it, he'll allude to Jesus, and he will preach the gospel. And because of that, our summers can be transformed, and our hearts can be transformed. But if that's going to happen, we have to have a few guidelines in how we study God's word. And these guidelines are the explanation of why we study the way that we do. So I'm gonna go through just a couple of things for us to really rally around and and decide together as a group of women that this is how we're gonna study the book of James. Number one, we are going to respect him as the author. James is the author of the study. He is not here to defend his own words, and so we need to respect him. Okay? What that means is that we are going to take, we're not going to take James's words and make them fit into our lives and, and squish them and turn them and change them so that they fit more comfortably on us. The invitation is for us to take our lives and to fit it into the Word of God through James. That means we're also going to ask the question of what did he mean? What was he writing to the original audience? We're gonna look for the main point that he was trying to get to that dispersed church. So take a quick second and look at your workbooks. What you might find in these books is that there's not a ton of long paragraphs. You're not gonna find a ton of stories and jokes. There's one joke, it's not even that good. You'll probably miss it, but um, why is that? It's because I am not the author of the book of James. This is a guide, and I don't want to spoon-feed every answer. It's not going to be like there's a ton of multiple choice or give me answers. You shouldn't be able to get through many of these questions without looking in your Bible. Okay? So the reason why we do that is because we are going for a much longer-term approach. We don't want just the quick pick-me-up of the book of James to just get us to the 4th of July. We want to be transformed from the inside out forever. Another uh, principle I just want to draw your attention to, and, and most of you guys know this, but we do follow just a, some, a simple guideline. that We didn't make it up. It comes from Jen Wilkin and, how, and her book, Women of the Word. The first question that you should always ask when you're reading God's Word is really simple. It's a comprehension question. It says, what does the text say? Right? It's so simple, but we skip it. Right? We open up a verse and we just skip right over that. Just ask the simple question, what does it actually say? Okay, so it said 12 tribes. I've got enough material right there that I could work on that and see if I understand that for a while. Second question is interpretation. What does it mean? What does it say? What does it mean? And then application. That's when we get to say, what does it mean for me? Okay, this book is so practical. You will have so much application every day, every week. So I would just encourage you to let it go through its due process so that we can understand the book as James intended it to be understood. Secondly, and this is what we also say on repeat because it's so important, we are going to study this book with our mind leading our hearts. That does not mean you have to leave your heart at home for Bible study. We are not trying to be the smartest girls in Iowa City. We're not trying to be impressive with our Bible trivia, okay? We are trying to understand God's word with our mind leading our hearts. We want God's word to come in here. Then we want it to go down to our heart, change our heart, and then our behavior changes, okay? Mind to heart out in our hands, okay? When we try and just be mature Christians in our behavior by being obedient exhausting. But I think we'll find that if we ask God to help us follow this path of transformation, the joy of obedience will be multiplied and his commands will not be burdensome. So when we respect this book and we push ourselves to inform our minds and and we push ourselves more than we otherwise naturally would, we will grasp both the how of Christian maturing and the why behind it. Ladies, the why of all the commands of James is Jesus. You will notice that Jesus was on James's eyelids as he wrote this book. It's who he's thinking about all the time. And as we begin to see that, like, oh man, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Oh man, I think he's picturing Jesus' behavior from young adulthood. What we will begin to understand is that this book... It's not primarily about us, right? This book is primarily about Jesus. It's primarily about God. Again, doesn't that seem so obvious? But if we really stop and think about how often we approach God's word, thinking it's primarily about us, that we're the main character, that we're the star of the book, we're missing so much in here. The book has a lot to say about me and about you and about our lives but primarily it is about God. It is not a behavior modification list for a happier summer. It is a book packed with the message of the gospel about Jesus. So when you open, whether you do all five days in one setting or you do it, you know, you don't do it at all. (laughs) When you open your workbooks and your Bible, guys, aim deeper than you have before. Mine for greater treasures than just behavior modification. There's something better here for us than just that. And I, I think that James got this. This is the most amazing part of James's context. See, I think that after seeing the resurrected Christ, his brother, after James saw him, I, I think that his faith not just took root, but I think that it really dug deep. It didn't just sprout up quickly and then get burned by the hot sun. It endured. James's faith endured. James's faith matured. Not only did he learn the lessons that he now will share with us, but his faith so matured and it so persevered that he was counted worthy of sharing in the sufferings of his brother. Guys, listen to this. Church history tells us that not long after this book was written, James the Just was dragged to the top of the temple in Jerusalem and thrown off by men who opposed the gospel. He did not die from that fall. So they then stoned him to death. Was it not just a couple years before that, that Jesus said to his brother, to young skeptic James, James, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Ladies, something so radically changed in James that the world would indeed hate him, as he believed in Jesus, as he learned to count it as pure joy, to face trials of many kinds. That is the example we have paving our way this summer. So maybe we will then be encouraged to count it all joy in whatever we are struggling with. Maybe when we face many trials this summer, we will remember James' examples and be encouraged to share in Christ's sufferings. Maybe we will be encouraged to control our tongues, to remain unstained from the world, to break off our friendship with the world because of James' example, which, which points to the faithfulness of God. Maybe we will be encouraged to press on. Maybe you will be encouraged to be steadfast. Maybe I will be encouraged to have pure religion maybe we will all finish this race well as we pursue spiritual maturity for the next six weeks would god so open our eyes that we would not just know about god but that we would know god that we would know the god of the bible and therefore worship him let's pray